0: This is episode one of the Kipodcast, and for that,
1: we apologise. This began as a super serious history show, which spiralled in a deranged direction very, very quickly, and ended up as a pseudo business pitch Shark Tank style show. It's almost like if you were watching TV
0: and your antenna was a bit wonky, and you were watching the History Channel. Everything started going fuzzy and then you get interrupted and next thing you know, you're watching Shark Tank.
1: No, there was a knock on the door and there was a business salesman pitching at you the moment you open it and you end up just leaving the house with him.
0: Yeah, pretty much. But to uh, accommodate that, what we did is we got on a special guest, our first guest and the biggest celebrity name we know, the fifth highest (laughs) contestant on a series of MasterChef in 2018 or something,
1: (laughs) Kyle Lyons. A very intelligent man, but also a moron. He was a perfect guest for the show. Kept us on our toes. We kept throwing facts at him. We threw nonsense at him and we eventually threw a business pitch once in a lifetime opportunity at him. And the topic of the day was a notorious little-known figure from Russia called the Bloody White Baron and his adventures in Mongolia.
0: It's a wild ride. You'll see where it goes from here. Probably downhill, then back up. And then to the flat mongolian step sharp plateau exactly so this is episode
1: one of genghistron part one jump on our instagram to check out any images or weird references that we chuck up throughout the show all right i'm going to officially start the podcast now great Hello, Kyle, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your supposedly busy day to join us. As we were just discussing, we have brought you on today, which didn't take a lot of coaxing because as we hinted at, this is an incredible opportunity, not just for you, but for everyone we choose to honor by dragging into this pyramid scheme. We met many years ago. We've had many experiences together that have brought us very, very close. You hold a list of accolades, not limited to being a MasterChef contestant, a proud father of three and a savvy businessman. For these reasons, Kyle, I have decided to let you in on mine and Seb's plan. So,
0: Kyle, if I told you that I had in my possession, a 300 year old USB stick, (laughs) loaded up, (laughs) what, what, Yeah. (laughs) Um... yeah, keep going. Okay. Um, A 300 year old USB stick that we unearthed from my great, great granddad's tomb just over lockdown. (laughs) And on it was something that has the potential to revolutionize and re-energize world finance as we know it. Would you want to plug that stick in?
2: Absolutely. I make a a point of plugging anything that can fit in any sized hole straight in. So plug it in.
0: You are talking about computers, right?
2: Absolutely. Okay, Grant, yeah. Grant, Grant, Grant.
1: <laughs> we're probably going to edit all of this out. So it'll appear that we're just talking to no one and it'll just be me and Seb. I hope
2: so. Asking
1: questions into the abyss. Uh, well, it's good to hear that you're in. So you're in, is that it?
2: Absolutely, yeah, let's go. Do I, I don't have to plug it into my computer though, do I?
1: We will supply said computer. Sweet. So I told you on the phone that this is about the 50th attempt for Seb and I to record this podcast. It is in fact a history podcast, if you weren't aware of that. And the first attempt was pretty normal. We went about it like normal people. We researched the topic, we sat down, we discussed the topic, we forced it out about six times in a row, pretending to surprise each other with this information we'd heard about a zillion times. Mm -hmm. We got through a four hour session, basically without stopping. We both collapsed from dehydration and we had a three day hangover so sick we had to start again and we had to rethink because we realized something was missing not only in the podcast but in our lives there was a gaping gaping hole in our very existence that was the cause for the failure of the podcast now
0: how many episodes on masterchef were you actually on because you did pretty well uh
2: i think it was like 15 episodes maybe i was i was oh yeah i don't know i actually don't know I can't remember. I didn't watch the series after the first one because <laughs> I felt very uh, uh, uncomfortable. Really? Yeah, it's really weird watching yourself, and especially when you, like, don't win. If I'd won, I'd be streaming it every day.
0: <laughs> Luckily
1: for you, we will win. There's not a matter of winning. This is a sure thing. And I watched your MasterChef, and you were excellent, but you were also a nervous, sweaty mess. Yes. And you were the reddest man I've ever seen. And it was, as your friend. I'm redder now. Was, it was hard to watch someone crumble <laughs> under the hot, hot lights of pressure. Did
0: you ever have to? Did you ever have to cook anything that was spiritually compromising?
2: Uh, <laughs> no, not spiritually compromising. I wasn't eating uh, uh, meat when I first went on there, and I uh, had to quickly figure out how to do that in like one week um, because you had to cook meat all the time, and so.
1: You are willing to do whatever it takes to make mountains of cash.
0: Absolutely.
2: I, yeah, I'm, a, I'm for hire. You just name your price. I'm, I'm good to go.
0: That's good to know because you're the biggest celebrity we know.
2: <laughs> That's unfortunate.
0: All right, look, anyway, let's cut to the chase. We want your crushing celebrity endorsement on this. Now, I'd like you to go to your electronic mail, commonly referred to as email. Yes and please open up a message sent to you by the Kip Podcast and describe in absolute detail everything you see.
2: All right. <clears throat> <laughs> There's not much in this, to be honest, I've got- uh, Go on. It's a single black and white image and a single word. By the looks of it, it's a, it's a man with a very large forehead. I don't know if he looks a bit like a Nazi or a like some, some Russian, uh, I don't know. He's just like a gross-looking, it's gross, a gross-looking dude. Gross-looking dude wearing some pretty baggy Hessian clothes. And it says exponential on the bottom.
0: Excellent, excellent. You, look, you're not too far off. A Nazi, gross, shabbily dressed is exactly who we're talking about. Uh-huh. His name, the, the name of that man in the photo is Roman Maximilian von Ungern Sternberg. It's his real name. Mm-hmm. Strong he's, name. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And he's a Baltic German baron um, who makes a name for himself in the Russian Revolution. Have you ever seen that man before? I've seen his photo before and
2: not just when Jake sent it to me earlier, but I have, I have seen it before, but I don't know why.
0: Um, has he ever appeared to you in a dream or religious vision?
2: <laughs> Very possibly. I um I've done a lot of uh, soul searching with the aid of hallucinogens, so yep. um, yeah, he might have he might have popped up
0: a few times. Excellent, Jake. Describe in great detail who that man is.
1: Kyle, this is a man who was born in Estonia. He's a German. He's part of the Russian Empire and he led a ragtag group of Mongolians to take back Mongolia from Chinese rule, and then he wanted to gather a holy army of Buddhist warriors to take back Russia from the Bolsheviks and cleanse it of its revolutionary filth. He failed. He failed miserably. (laughs) He did, however, succeed in gathering this ridiculous army, conquering Mongolia. He was declared Genghis Khan reincarnated, a god of war, and a Mahakala protector of the Dharmist faith. Do you reckon you have succeeded and do you reckon you have made have as many successes as this man?
2: Oh, look, I've had some small wins, but um it feels like it feels like I I probably have done more things that were uh, less
1: destructive and psychotic. Yeah. <laughs> yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That.
1: He's generally a pretty conflicting character. Uh history History has not shined a great light on him, but at the same time, there's not a light, a lot of light shone on him. No one knows a fucking thing. He burnt everything that came across his desk, including his own notes. Uh, the only man to really write about him was a famous fiction travel writer, and there's just nothing in English, basically. So all the notes we have were either scraped together from his ashes literally from the ashes of his bin or made up by this insane polish uh, sort of lonely planet guy
0: it's just because every time someone bumps into him he's just constantly burning notes and books and stuff so there's just <laughs> nothing written down by this dude the whole time
2: as, as as someone who is like actively going out and creating his own legacy he's uh also destroying it
1: all at once he is a conflicting contrasting beast uh Why is this relevant, Carl? Would you like to know that?
2: Yes. I I cannot tell
1: you that yet. um, However, it will become abundantly clear once Seb and I have filled you in on a few little tidbits that will give it some context.
0: Jake kind of sums it up pretty well. Like he's this Baltic German dude who is born and raised in the Russian Empire. He converts to Buddhism and declares a holy war, a Buddhist holy war on Vladimir Lenin when the Russian Revolution happens. So he's going off his nut at this stage. But basically, he just wants to reverse the whole revolution. He wants World War I to be a Russian victory. He wants the Russian Revolution to be put back in its grave. And then he will just be the last standing figure in the
1: empire and crown himself as king, if that makes sense.
2: Oh, I like style, to, to be honest.
1: <laughs> to a certain degree, he didn't have to be king. He just loved kings, whether it was the Russian king, the Chinese king, the Mongolian king. The friggin' Turkish king, any king, the king of Greece. He just he knew the way of things in the world, and when it got disrupted, something in his mind just snapped.
2: He's like Donald Trump Trump. He just
1: like respects a man, a wealthy man or a
2: man with hustle.
1: He knows the natural order of things, Carl. Uh-huh. And it was shaken. Speaking of like the man himself,
0: we know nothing about him as a kid. There's like only two facts that really come down to us. One is his school reports, which just say he's constantly smoking he grows his hair long he never goes to PE class and he's like smacks kids over the back of the head with his cane the second fact is that at 12 years old he goes to his neighbor's house and strangles their pet owl
1: (laughs) (laughs) also nearly nearly every day he would (sighs) pick up his school books throw them out of the school window and then go I better go get me books and just run off and disappear until he got expelled
2: was this
0: Part written down by the uh, fiction writer. No, not at all. This has actually come down to us from a reliable source. The, the actual neighbours, his neighbours reported just like this strange boy who they sort of knew, invited him round to their house and he just starts wringing the neck of this owl.
1: <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even succeed in killing it. So he was off to a very poor start. Brutal yes, effective no. You've got three kids. Is that like sort of normal behaviour?
2: I just recently had to attend a meeting uh, from my son biting the teacher on her bum uh, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, learning how to put different discipline uh, kind of rules and stuff at home and at daycare. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's all normal.
1: (laughs) If nothing else, you will learn some excellent forms of discipline in the next two hours.
2: I always thought I was quite good at hitting, but, um, apparently.
1: You're not as good as Ungern von Sternberg. I can tell you that much. No. <laughs> so do your children ever smoke in bed? <laughs> not, not that I know of. No, it's a pity. So he was a useless child. He got kicked out of every institution he ever enrolled in. Uh, he was from a noble family, so they had some strings they could pull. So he moved around, he got into some good schools. He just sucked miserably, uh, sort of naturally found himself in the military academies. Didn't even fit in there. He couldn't handle discipline at all. He seemed to have some complete natural inability to follow rules altogether. And he was just moved around, kicked out of schools. He would run off, blah, 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 blah.
0: And he's sort of like the original failed millennial. Because like, he leaves his little hometown in Estonia. He goes to St. Petersburg, where his parents have pulled the strings to enroll him in this prestigious school. He isn't absolute failure through his own lack of any talent whatsoever and then just quit school and just goes bumming around backpacking um all the way to mongolia he travels to mongolia just with no money but he sort of gets saved because world war one breaks out and then they just start taking in anyone into the army so the military school he previously failed well doesn't matter anymore because they'll take any reprobate and chuck him in
1: And even though he didn't really have natural talent, he still had a chip on his shoulder to prove something because he had an insane family history. He claimed to be related to the Khans of Mongolia, the Teutons, the Huns, the Crusaders, a wandering knight in the 17th century who called himself the Axe. In the 18th century, a baron called Willem Sternberg, known as the Brother of Satan, who was a famous alchemist, and most of all, a pirate in... Was it the coast of Estonia? Yeah. A pirate who used to maroon traders and sailors on his island by flashing a light so that they would crash into the rocks and then he would murder (laughs) and rob the crews until a famous court case brought him down. He might be right though, because a lot of those people uh, did
2: did
0: quite a bit of raping. Who? The Sternbergs?
1: No, pirates and... Oh, right, just general <laughs> No, I think we need to start again. He was the pirate. The
2: person who he was related to? Yeah,
1: his yeah, un- yeah. His his actual uncle was
0: basically this washed-up aristocrat who's living in this giant mansion that he can't afford, so it's falling apart. So to make ends meet, he's just... He basically is mimicking a lighthouse so ships will wreck themselves on the rocks outside his house. And then he he killed the captain of one Swedish ship and just took all the loot. I mean, that's just enterprising,
1: really. I suppose so. Every book we've read basically has these same 10 facts. It is all the information in the world on this man.
2: It's It's about who he's related to.
1: Yeah, so there's just this short list of privateers and crusaders that he is related to that essentially got him to where he was and put this chip on his shoulder that he was from a great violent warrior family.
2: Mm. What's your background, Sebastian? Um, I'm noticing quite a bit of resemblance between you
0: <laughs> and our... <laughs> I beg your pudding. You listen to me, boy. When I unearthed unearth my great-great-granddad, I wasn't expecting this kind of back talk.
1: We violated a tomb for you.
0: It's definitely you. It's definitely your great-great-granddad. Yeah, look, my background is Northern European. I won't say where in the north of Europe, mm. but from somewhere you may have likely visited. I'll leave it at that.
1: Nah, I haven't been to Europe. Forget Europe. This story does not take place in Europe. So, is that a pager? Yeah. Saying what? You needed in surgery. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, in World War One, Ungern is exposed to violence, but he, as you can imagine, seems to thrive in the environment. The unit he was in, in, in the war, Had a hundred and seventy percent officer mortality rate and a two hundred percent soldier mortality rate, which means one in fifteen men died of the overall unit. But it meant the two hundred percent one means two entire units were wiped out, and then they sent a third of which some survived, (laughs) and he was one that somehow just survived the whole time and loved it. It's sort of weird because so he grows up in this weird German
0: bubble in the Russian Empire, like the Russians take over Estonia in like, I think the 17th or 18th century, um, they find all these Germans already living in the Baltic States. They just say, you know what, they, they're sort of like good at what they do. They're good soldiers. They run the place. Well, let's just keep them there. So that's why his family grew up German inside of Russia. They're called Baltic Germans, but the whole time he's like growing up, like he's got German nannies. He goes to a German speaking school. Um, all his neighbors are German. And he is just so out of touch with Russia. It's just unbelievable. Like he believes that the peasants around him who are all Russians, of course, have black blood and a subhuman <laughs> they kind of like hoof footed animal like creature. He just has no idea. So when world war one strikes, they just go, well, look, you can speak German. Why don't you go fight for us and start doing some snooping and spying on the German lines, which is pretty good at
1: his sense of entitlement is out of control he's famous for calling everyone a swine (laughs) he just thrashes anyone he sees as being below him with any sort of thin rod he can get his hands on he's kicked out of bars essentially at school all over again but he's he's on the uh the front of world war one so it's the same old story but he does do quite well even if that means he just doesn't die and he's really brutal he wins an award for bravery because he is like climbing trees and sitting
0: in for days, waiting for German soldiers to come past where he's sort of reporting back to the Russian artillery, how many people are there. But then he jumps out of those trees and just leads these suicidal charges, either on his own or with a small group of people at the Germans where they're just going, what the F is going on? Um, and, and he's coming back, like apparently he takes his jacket off after these things and it's just full of bullet holes. Oh God. Stoked. He mails it back to his mother in Estonia <laughs> to show off.
1: What a badass he is! Also, I think it was his own grandmother described him as being suspended between heaven and hell, without the least understanding of the laws of this world. <laughs> that is an excellent quote. <laughs> um, so he does pretty well. He sort of found his place. Thank God for the collapse of of the world. The world. Thank God for war, but the collapse of the Tsarist empire however doesn't go down so well um am i right Sam? So is that where we are yeah
0: like it's it's kind of um like he's failed at everything up until this point the only thing he's good at is being a soldier but now that's going to come to a crushing end because the russian government's collapsing and they're about to pull out of the first world war now I was going to go through like all the causes of why russia was a collapsing mess but what i did instead was just get a quote from the hit hbo series the great and it says describing russia quote russia is an old sow of a country that lays near dead and heaving in a pile of mud impossible to move
1: (laughs) and we could describe under as standing over this dead cow and just kicking it in the back (laughs)
2: it's good imagery i'm enjoying yeah
1: that. he's kicking it out of love too he wants it to get back on its feet so he can go about business as it was but it shall never be the same again
2: so he can go back to all of his hoof-footed russian imps running around him and and just living his german life
1: that's the main thing we're not sure what he wants to go back to his life was miserable he was an absolute failure until all this rolled around yet he wants to just reinstate the status quo that he didn't fit into. I think
0: there's something there because, like, this is a period of, like, lost boys coming to the fore. Like, Stalin was a bank robber before the war. Um, Lenin lived above a sausage factory in Switzerland doing kind of nothing. Ungern was just a deadbeat, kicked out of school, broke, pathetic human. And now all these people are, like, rising to the, you know, the cream of the crop in terms of revolutionary figures.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> however they are the cream the cream gets pushed east essentially as the bolsheviks take over Ungen gets sent to an old unit he was in actually in siberia and quite happily goes into the far far east and like at this time
0: the russian government's so unorganized it's collapsing it can't fight the war anymore you've got troops who are like mutinying. they don't want to be a part of this kind of killing machine where there's a 200% casualty rate. Um, So, you know, things are falling apart. There's agitation everywhere. There's groups like communists, there's groups of anarchists, there's all these people sort of like charging for like political power. Ungern, rather than sort of look around and go, you know what, this government is kind of a fat heaving sow in a pile of mud. He starts (laughs) going deep into conspiracy theories, just like Hitler, he thinks that Russia's been stabbed in the back, and the people responsible for it losing the war are the Jews and the communists.
2: Yeah, they seem to be the like the always scapegoat, don't they? Or Jews, the scapegoat, the scapegoat, the scapegoat,
1: right? <laughs> he blames it on goats, Jews, and communists. Yeah, and he kills them in that order. Yeah. Essentially this is the point he dedicates the rest of his life to fighting both the Jew and the red peril that's mm. coming in from the West. Uh, and he does so as far from the heart of the Russian Empire as you can get.
0: In Mongolia. Almost. He's almost there. Like what happens? How yeah. how many Jews are in Mongolia though? Well you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> it will be. Well, it's sort of like this, this vacuum, like when a big country like Russia sort of collapses, you have this kind of like, I don't know how else to describe it two way vacuum, it's sucking in people that are fighting, rebel rising, wanting to overthrow the government. But then you're also pushing out all these refugees. And there's just 1000s of 1000s of Russian um, Russians of all sorts heading east, the only way for them to escape, they don't want to end up in German hands. So they're going to the east all the Mm. way to China to try and escape the communists and the revolution that's happening in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And that's how you sort of end up with a huge movement of a lot of Jews actually heading to get the hell out of there, to get to China and escape from there.
1: Everyone's, mm. everyone's heading east. A lot of people are heading to China to try and catch a boat to America, the land of the free, where one can be safe and rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of them don't make it. So there is one train line heading through siberia in this direction at this point and it's on this train line that ungan is stationed with his Transbaikalian unit uh it's a pretty diverse area there are ethnic mongols there there are russians there there are buryats there are Kalmuks, there are all these different groups of sort of steppe people and ungan finds himself very much at home once again uh, and actually rises the ranks this time yeah
0: well like when the sort of it, at this moment in Russia like there's all these competing groups for like who's going to take over the Tsarist government's sort of toppling in slow motion um when it's looking like the communists are going to be the ones they're going to win and in particular the Bolsheviks people like Ungern who were like aristocrats and from like royal prestigious families they know they're going to be targets because you know it's the workers paradise that's coming up so they double down they stay in their military units head east and just say we're going to form a band a new government known as the Whites that are gonna retake Russia.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds about right. <clears throat> so the white supremacists are fighting strong <laughs> and hard. Although not true. Diverse crowd, as I said, very diverse crowd. Uh and at this point it's the whites versus the Reds, because it's everyone else has fought themselves out. People are just shooting each other in the forests without even asking anyone's names. And it's whittled down essentially to these two groups. And whittled down to these areas that are very very far from sort of the center of the universe at this point. So all these
0: old like Russian aristocrats and soldiers that don't want to be part of the communist revolution that have headed east, they kind of like map out okay, we've got Siberia, we've got the east. Um who's going where, who's going to be like setting up uh you know fort here. So they send Ungern to the middle of nowhere, basically a railway stationing point on the steppe which is the equivalent of being in the middle of the desert and just say, you're guarding this area, inspect anyone that comes through, interrogate everyone, and just hold the fort so we can reassemble further east.
1: And Ungun translates these orders very, very harshly. He inspects literally everyone that comes through and murders a vast quantity of them, especially the Jews. They are essentially dragged off the train and shot, uh, and it just ramps up. And his stay here goes from bad to worse to outright unspeakable.
0: They put him in a town in Siberia called Daria and there's this like mud brick kind of two-story house there. They just call the Red Fort and apparently that's mm-hmm. where the Baron starts his HQ and you just hear 24 hours a day screams and blood-curdling cries for help because he's just torturing people non-stop. Ugh, he's industrialised it. Pretty much.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's called the gallows of Siberia. And because of the one train line, anyone passing through in either direction has very little chance of actually getting to where they were going. Or at the very least, they won't get there with any of their possessions. Uh, If they're lucky, they'll get there with their lives.
0: Apparently you can still see the red fort in that town today, but I went on Google street view in the middle of Mm -hmm. Russia and I cannot confirm that at all. I went (laughs) to the town of Daria Cannot confirm any red fort in existence. Oh, that's a bummer.
1: Yeah, maybe it's a, hopefully it never existed at all. <laughs> but anyway, um, this, so he's oh, you go. No, nah, I got nothing. Oh, well, look, anyway, he's held up in like it's just like the equivalent of
0: being put up in Kansas or something. He's there on his own. He's got a bunch of soldiers with him. He's making everyone take Mongolian lessons. He's, um, there's a lot of Chinese in the area and he takes great delight in robbing them blind. He's got an eye for stealing tobacco, beer, mustard and coconuts for some reason. (laughs) There's a thriving coconut trade at this time. And him and his men are happily pillaging all that.
1: And this is happening all across sort of the Siberian area. But the difference is a lot of these other warlords are just hoarding cash. They're famous for uh, building themselves harem summer trains, as they're called, with orchestras, just swathes of prostitutes. They're living the the dream. Ungan, on the other hand, is pouring all of his loot into his military, into his men and into his fort. He's even supposedly using his own cash to fund the operation and still lives like an absolute pauper. Or if anything, is going... uh, Going native, he's starting to sleep outside with his Buryat Mongols. He's living in a ger, uh, which is a Mongolian yurt. He's starting to dress a little Eastern. Uh, essentially, he's starting to Mongolify at this point.
2: Mm, sounds quite familiar to me, Jake. I know, <laughs> know someone who's <laughs> uh,
0: who's gone down that
2: path? He's <laughs> gone very, very close down that path. A little less of the murdering,
0: but um.
1: I had to to give my appropriating up, unfortunately, to make this podcast. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: The civil war is getting so out of control. There's just dead bodies littered everywhere. So you're having like wolves come out of the Siberian forest and they're not afraid anymore. They're just attacking even a human walking down the street. And then the rumors start to go around Siberia that the Baron is actually friends with the wolves and is luring them into his Red Fort. He has them sleep in the attic of the Red Fort. And apparently the Siberian peasants even believe he goes around on a sled that's pulled by wolves, terrorising and murdering like small a settlements. Like an
2: evil Santa. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> there are rumours that the mountains of bones that litter the countryside is where you will find him on a full moon, completely naked, just strolling, running his hands through the bones with a pack of wolves following him. He also decides to get married at this point, Carl and gets himself a Chinese wife on some sort of diplomatic mission in the South at some point. That is literally all the information in the universe on this relationship, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it was I'm sure it was a lovely party. But, like, things are getting, like, unsustainable now. So
0: the communists are really in control of the big cities in the west of Russia, where most of the population lives, and they want to get rid of any of these anti-communist forces. So they're kind of assembling. They're pretty well organised. And they start launching these train attacks into the Red Fort. So they basically have these huge trains. They load them up with like tank turrets. They have men with machine guns on there. And then they just drive them at full speed into the town that Ungern is and just start blowing it up, shooting everyone up. So Ungern's solution is to build another train also with a tank (laughs) turret with more guns on it. And they have these train wars where these two trains will just pull up in a town just start <laughs> blasting each other on the same track.
2: This can't be real.
0: It is 100% real. I've I
1: never find. heard anything it's like completely it's real. real. There are a few who have. Even, even his arrival in Daria, apparently it was already run by this guy called Sepalov, who becomes his lieutenant, but this is a man just as famous for torturing people who has Tourette's syndrome, and Ungin just walks into the town... Uh hits him in the stomach with his rifle and tells him that he's in charge, and then that's it he just is in charge
2: <laughs> 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 oh, that's a good promotion tactic i think <laughs> yeah. right. where, where are they getting their resources from obviously they're, they're stealing all this stuff from the people that they're killing, but like where are they getting like the coal or whatever's powering the trains and stuff like that
1: It's a very good question mm. from who they're robbing mm-hmm also remember this is the force that's fighting the communists so they are getting a trickle of funding Mm -hmm. from people that don't want the communists to take over um who are essentially the last remaining empires which are there's the chinese empire is falling apart uh so they're i think giving them some cash the japanese are giving them some money and strangely enough the mexicans (laughs)
0: Yeah, there's a whole lot of Mexican pesos swirling uh, swirling around Siberia and Mongolia at this time. It's almost like the currency of choice.
1: Wow. So we've got Ungan walking through town, followed by his wolves. He's starting to dress in like really shiny little red Chinese jackets. Is he actually followed by his
2: wolves though? Is that just... Yeah, it's fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about that. (laughs) And he's, he's famous at this point. For carrying a bamboo stick, which he will just indiscriminately thrash anyone, sometimes to death, with at any point in time. And he carries this essentially for the rest of his life to thrash at will. Mm -hmm. And he's really, he's so,
0: um, he's hard to pin down. He's deeply anti-Semitic and racist, yet at the same time. He loves, he prefers Mongolians and Central Asian and Siberian peoples to actual Russians and Germans for some reason. Like, he has this rule where at the end of every night, you all have to go to church and pray, but you can pray to whatever God you want. So, mm. everyone will be gathering outside the Red Force and at all at the same time just praying to Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, um, shamanistic gods and tokens before they do their evening dinner. It's pretty, it's kind mm. of progressive, right?
2: No. Think, <laughs> no, it's not. That seems to be like, I've I've seen a lot of interviews with uh, uh, you know, anti-Semitic people, mm. white supremacists, things like that. And quite often they'll be like, uh, the little, the, the yellow fellas, they're the smart ones, you know, like, yeah. and I think it's a way that they kind of go, look, we're not being, we're not racist because we like these people because they're smart and, you know, good at technology and things like that. So they, it's a kind of a way, a mechanism of them, like, keeping their, you know, their, their understanding of themselves as a good person intact uh, whilst still, you know, wanting to murder, uh, do, do some genociding. <laughs> and
1: I, I, I think it's true. He, sees, he seems to see the nomad and sort of the Central Asian peoples in general as pure. So whatever that means to him, like, whether it's in regards to the fall of the Tsar, and sort of the impure communists taken over, they're besmirched by their ideas or whatever. He sees the Buddhists in particular as just this pure sort of lantern light uh, of beliefs because they're this area is fanatically Buddhist at this point and and he loves it and he takes it on, yet somehow to him, it's not conflicting to his strong mm-hmm. Christian beliefs. He can hold them both at once, <laughs> this cognitive dissonance. And like you said, it could reinforce his existing views.
0: hmm I think he sees these Buddhist people as so pure because he thinks the communists are the absolute devils. Like he sees communism as a complete Jewish plot. He thinks it's tied back to this cabal of people from the times of Babylon 3,000 years ago that have still continuing on and their sole mm-hmm. goal is to destroy the Russian Tsar and the Russian Empire.
2: Well, I haven't seen any evidence to say that isn't true yet. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not you wrong. Might, you might not. He is getting pretty hyper, if not spiritual, then philosophical himself. Hey, at this point, he is dabbling with shamans. He's hanging out with the Buryats a lot, uh, which is a pretty strong Buddhist area. Even in the area of strong Buddhists, okay. uh, he's he's throwing knuckle bones He's getting fortunes read, and he's sort of mapping out, I guess, his own destiny to some extent and getting very, very interested in Mongolia. And at some point, as he's not very good at following orders anyway, he just packs up from his cronies sort of in the area, the other warlords with their treasure trains, and he just bails. He heads south.
0: There's a lot of evidence to suggest that he's doing hallucinogenic mushrooms with the shaman he meets out in Siberia. I mean, it would explain a lot.
2: Mm, it'd also be kind of silly not to <laughs> <laughs> Got an opportunity like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, at this point, yeah, you're right. Like he, he he's just sort of looks around at the situation. It's almost as if he's bored slash needs to retreat and doesn't want to admit it. So he takes what's left mm-hmm. of his band and stops the torture. And he goes across to Mongolia with the chief idea of running it. He wants to run the whole country. But to do that, he's first got to take it over from the Chinese, because at this point, the Qing Empire is running Mongolia as a colonial vassal.
1: And Mongolia itself is a universe upon itself. I would like to quote the author we mentioned earlier, Kyle, the holder of all of the references for our research, whether they are fiction or non-fiction, we are still unsure. Quote, In the heart of Asia lies the enormous mysterious and rich country of Mongolia, the native bloody land of conquerors who have left here their capitals covered by the sands of the Gobi, their mysterious rings and their ancient nomad laws, the country of wandering tribes administered by the descendants of Genghis Khan, this is Mongolia. Mysterious country of the cults of Rama, cults guarded, of the very person of the living Buddha, the states of monks and devils, the lands of mysterious doctors, prophets, sorcerers, fortune tellers and witches, the lands of the sign of the swastika, the land that has not forgotten the thoughts of the long deceased great potentates of Asia and half of Europe. This is Mongolia. The land of nude mountains, of plains burned by the sun and killed by the cold, of ill cattle and ill people, the nest of pests, anthrax and smallpox, the land of boiling hot springs and mountain passes inhabited by demons, land of wolves, rare species of deer and mountain goats, marmots in millions, wild horses, wild donkeys and wild camels that have never known the bridle, ferocious dogs and rapacious birds that devour the dead bodies cast of the plains by the people that is Mongolia, the land whose disappearing primitive people gaze upon the bones of their forefathers whitening in the sun and dust of their plains, where are dying out the people who formerly conquered China, Siam, Northern India and Russia and broke their chests against the iron lances of the Polish Knights, defending then all of the Christian world from the invasion of wild and wandering Asia, that is Mongolia. The land swelling with natural riches, producing nothing, in need of everything, destitute and suffering from the world's cataclysm. That is Mongolia.
2: Kind of a roller coaster, wasn't it? There's, Oof. there's a lot going on there.
1: There's a dry mouth. That, that, <laughs> um, that's
0: the best Lonely Planet blurb I've ever read
1: or heard. <laughs> to paraphrase, he's describing a desperate, parched, low-resource... Swathe of just sun bleached pain. These people are backwards, they are desperate, and they are merciless. And don't forget, Mongolia is being
0: run by an imperial power, China, which we mentioned before. It's like it's colonialism, really. Mm. And it's sort of weird because at this time, China's losing all its territory, like Hong Kong to the British, it's already lost Macau to the Portuguese, the French are setting up shop in Shanghai. So colonialism is racking the Qing empire, but instead of thinking, "Mm, okay, this kind of sucks, they just doubled down on it on their own territories. So the Chinese just start ruling Mongolia under an even harder and stricter iron fist, and basically just ravaging the country. They're taking all the treasure out of it. There's reports from an American ambassador who's there at the time saying it's not uncommon to see Chinese soldiers just whipping poor Mongolian street kids constantly. Um, It's at this point, it's ripe for revolution.
1: Yeah, and it's a fanatically religious country, as we said. Uh, It's always been ruled, at, at least for the last few hundred years, since the days of Genghis, by a Buddhist leader. So a reincarnation of the Buddha has been a Khan of Mongolia ruling the whole country until the Chinese displaced them. They allowed them to continue holding their religious place, but they were in no way ruling it and that was itching at the people as well because it was like ungan the natural order of things to the mongolians was that the reincarnation buddha sits on the throne
0: speaking of the reincarnated buddha who is <laughs> boggart khan who we're about to bump into
1: so if you thought ungan was a questionable character there is a man known as the boggart khan who said who sounds said throne of mongolia until the chinese booted him out and he is a fat, drunken pedophile oh. who is the reincarnation of the Buddha and the second highest-ranking Buddha in existence. Currently or ever? Not currently. Unfortunately, um, no longer exists. But oh. at this point in time, he was known as the Bogged Gengen, which is his Buddha reincarnated because he'd been stripped of the title of Khan, much to the people's disgust. Mm-hmm. However, much to our disgust, he was known... Essentially for being just a rampant sort of kitty fiddler, drunken mess, famous for his late-night parties, filling everyone up, drank himself into literal blindness. He had thick cataracts, which people believe may have actually been caused by syphilis, but it was sort of uh, generously spread. Yeah. It was caused by his drinking.
2: <laughs> <laughs> syphilis could also make you, like, go insane and also want to bang everyone
0: all the time
1: yeah and those qualities were there is that what
0: syphilis actually does
2: you can get like it's like neural syphilis or something where it gets into your spine and it oh. changes your behavior yeah it can it makes you very
1: promiscuous. Yeah, oh uh i'm yeah. feeling some of the blanks here yep. <laughs> he, he's known he's known to just randomly shoot his gun into the crowd uh the gun of which he got from sort of western travelers he loves collecting magazines guns little wooden toys just all sorts of things from the west he lives in a palace which was the very first two-story building ever built in mongolia at this point it's the only one so people would come around from all over the countryside to marvel at the staircase at the bottom of the uh boggards house which people believed defied physics (laughs) the actual staircase
2: Okay, not just cuz it was a two-story house.
1: Maybe that as well. <laughs> um also he one of his responsibilities as the reincarnation of of the Buddha was to essentially just dream. So he would go into a drunken daze and just pass out. And when he woke up, he'd just ramble his dream to a team of monks who would then have to decipher it and attach a religious meaning to it every single day. Uh <laughs> so that would not be translated but in Mongolian and in Sanskrit, they must be just these records of his visions that they've just twerked into meaning anything they could think of. And I'd just love to get my hands on these. <laughs> so you've got to look at it from Ungern's
0: position. He's just left. Mm-hmm. He's been fighting in World War I. The Russian army's lost. The government's collapsed. He's been chased out by the new communist government that's taken hold. He's been on a bloody murderous rampage across 11 time zones from Moscow all the way to Siberia. Now he's getting to Mongolia, which is under the spiritual rule of this guy called the Bogad Khan, who was so fat, he goes blind. And don't they order, they have to order 19,000 Jade Buddha statues from Poland, which they believe may cure his blindness. Did it? No. It bankrupted the entire country. They didn't give it. A,
1: they didn't give it enough time. Oh
2: gosh!
1: Also, he he had. There's a mountain behind uh, where he lived, which was reserved just for the bogged calm, and it's where he kept his zoo. It was also where he kept the zoo's keepers. So he had an elephant. And its keeper was a man known as Gongor, who was a seven-foot-tall <laughs> elephant keeper who spent his time in the Boggard's forest. <laughs> it is it's the unvarnished truth, Kyle,
0: <laughs> whether you choose to believe that or not.
1: Oh god. So to Ungan to Ungen, this man had been dispossessed of what was both rightfully his and rightfully the people's, the people needed their leader and the leader needed them. It was a symbiotic relationship that he needed to reinstate somewhere. If he couldn't do it at home, then God damn it, he could do it here. So he's been in loose contact with the, the Bogged Gengen, who's still sort of kicking around town, just doesn't hold his title of Khan anymore. Uh, and to cut a long story short, they plan an attack. He says, we're coming in. They come in, they don't do very well. They get by the Chinese. ousted yeah. again. So his ragtag group of Siberians so get beaten. So it's like at this point, beaten back, and the fat old Bogd Khan gets with, dragged into house arrest might be and 2, locked up.
0: men under Ungern's command. By the Chinese, his army is made up of <laughs> boyats, um, Mongolians, a few Russians who they say are in just absolute terrible condition because they don't have horses and are forced to march everywhere. He's got. He's got Japanese soldiers that um, are being lent out by the Japanese government because they don't want to see communism. They're petrified of communism. So they're doing everything they can to help people like Ungern. Um, So this is now an army that speaks six to seven different languages, is pretty poorly equipped and is now setting a mission for itself to not only keep fighting the communists, but to try and take over Mongolia from the Chinese government itself. So they're gonna fight two
1: wars at the same time.
2: Are they able to recruit there? Are they are
0: they trying
1: to... Hang on. They're recruiting, all right. Two, two methods of recruiting. As we said, it's a feverishly Buddhist country. So the Mongols are pretty happy about this. They are signing up left, right, and center to liberate their beloved pedophilic Khan. Mm. Uh, also, the Tibetans getting pretty interested. Uh, they are still the head honchos as far as this strain of Buddhism goes. So Ungan manages to secure himself some Tibetan special forces, which come in handy. Uh, The other method is to rock up to a community or a group of tents and just bludgeon everyone with his bamboo stick and press gang any men he can find into his army, Uh, which it's the middle of winter at this point and people are already pretty itchy. And then to get thrashed with a bamboo stick and dragged off at the age of 12 into this Russian's army. I can imagine it was irritating at the least. He's
2: taken a a book out of his, a a page out of his uh, uncle or whoever's book, like the Shanghaiing pirate.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And there's like one point where even his allies, like other sort of white leaders, um, they send over like some bureaucrats just to help him with the paperwork. Oh, does he get them? That's it. Like they send, yes. over this, <laughs> they send over this like sniveling, weedy little gray suited bureaucrat who just says, uh, Mr. Ungern, son, I'm here to help with your dossiers. He gets so angry. He gives him 50 lashes with the bamboo cane and press gangs this little bureaucrat into the military and makes him into a soldier <laughs> against his will.
2: Uh, I like that too much. That's
0: too
1: Me weird. too. <laughs> So yeah, anyone that rocks into camp is a soldier. They get a good thrashing. They get what's good for them. He burns the documents and they're in the army. (laughs) Um, So they've set up camp. They've been ousted from the capital. They've set up camp on the steppe in the middle of winter. It is a grisly time. It's minus 30 degrees. Uh, There's not a lot to eat. They're pretty much only hunting. There's no vegetables to speak of. Uh, Everyone's got scurvy. Everyone's starving. Most people are very far from home very hungry or they've been thrashed with a rod and press ganged into the army. Uh, On top of this, rather than going easy, Ungan just doubles down on his discipline. He starts making people sleep up trees for multiple nights in a row, just for no reason at all. He's thrashing people with his stick. He makes you strip naked. Uh, He's beating the shit out of people just for questioning him. And he
0: refuses to, like, he's just sleeping either out in the open himself or in a tent where he's emblazoned a swastika on the floor. And at this point as well, if they, if they happen to bump into any like poor Russian peasant farmer that is nearby or refugees, they're bringing him to the Baron. And he is, <laughs> according to his own thoughts, reading their minds and determining if they're a communist or not. If they are, he kills them. If not, he press gangs them into his forces.
1: Mm. He's got options. And, and once again, they're gearing <laughs> up ready for battle. Uh, whether this is because they're ready or because they just have to, they have no clothing, they have no food. People try to desert, but you can't desert into a minus thirty degree step that's thirty thousand kilometers from your homeland. So they have no choice but to just bear it. Uh, but eventually, Ungan's ready, and he decides to do a reconnaissance mission himself into the capital city of Urga, where the Bogged Khan. He's under house arrest. Good man. Before you go there, really quickly, we've just
0: got to describe some of his posse. Ungern's sitting on the precipice. He's out in the harsh winter, ready to invade. Everyone is getting scurvy because they're only eating marmots, which um, marmots are covered in fleas, and there's bubonic plague spreading around the camp. So some of Ungern's like less savoury characters start popping out. One is another Baltic German who's been with him the whole way called Dr. Klinenberg, who is this absolutely insane antisemitic eugenicist practicing doctor who believes in Spartan-like treatment on patients. So when the soldiers are getting the plague from eating all these marmots, he's just saying, well, it's survival of the fittest. And he's leaving them on hospital beds in the middle of a frozen field, just seeing who will die and who will live. And that's his medical treatment.
2: Yeah, doesn't sound... doesn't sound great.
1: (laughs) We've also got Sepilov, who was the guy in charge of Daria before Ungan punched him in the guts and took over, who is pacing around the camp with Tourette's, just barking what people can't tell is an order or not an order, and just torturing anyone at will. He's in charge of the Secret Service which basically entails him dragging anyone he feels the need to into his torture chamber at any point. And these are all, none of these people are enemies. They are all their own men, mm. just living in this squalid hell camp in the middle of the freezing step.
2: It sounds like he's just really making it hard for himself, to be honest.
1: He absolutely undeniably is.
0: And he doesn't seem to care. He, all he believes in is discipline
1: at all costs. But he does have a goal, and a righteous goal it is, and the Boggard needs rescuing. Ungan, wearing his famous little shiny red Chinese jacket, sneaks over the fences, sneaks into the window of the Boggard Khan's house and gets a glimpse of the man <laughs> to plan his escape. Unfortunately, what Ungan sees is that the bogged Khan, over the months, has doubled in size and is now so fat that he won't even be able to fit on a horse. So <laughs> Ungan sneaks back out of the camp... To deliberate. And on his way, he supposedly sees a sleeping Chinese guard outside the house, takes out his famous bamboo cane, thrashes the guy awake, gives him a lecture in, like, broken Chinese about how he should take better care of guarding the Boggert Khan's house, kills him, jumps back over the fence, and returns to his own camp to start the attack. So he's now, like,
0: he's basically given the alert that we're here and we're about to invade rather than being like stealthy and s- sneaky he's just alerted everyone just to give this chinese soldier
1: a lecture
2: yeah also how redundant is that he gives him a lecture and then murders him so he can't, <laughs> <It gives> he- <laughs> he can't do anything about it now.
1: he's a man of the moment without a doubt
0: <laughs> but to be fair well like his troops now are kind of like starved tortured dogs they're just like animals that have been left and brutalized in the mongolian winter but they do one thing that's kind of clever. Like before they attack this time, they go around the outskirts of um, the Mongol capital and start lighting all these little fires on the mountaintops, like hundreds of them. So it appears that their force is larger than it actually is. And it also freaks out the Chinese because the Chinese troops that are supposed to be guarding the city are super superstitious, super superstitious. Not a little, suspicious,
2: superstitious,
0: (laughs) and um, they believe that all these fires are upsetting the mountain gods in Mongolia and get freaked the hell out.
1: So while this is happening, the uh, Chinese peasants are squibbling in their boots, is squibbling a word? I think so. They're very scared. Uh, He sends his Tibetan special forces in through none other than the Boggards sacred forest, where his zoo is. So the Tibetans sneak in, sneak over the fence, kick in the door to the house, drag out the enormous Khan, squeeze him onto a horse, sandwich him between two other horses, which has them on it. They hold him up and they ride his enormous bulk out and into the oncoming battle. And at this time, Ungern's
0: at the north side of Urga, the Mongolian capital, and he's about to launch his attack. He wants to rid this city of Chinese once and for all. So They're about to, they've sort of got this like vague plan, but someone accidentally launches an artillery shell, which is basically in those days, just a giant firework. It explodes, (laughs) it freaks out the elephant in the bogged zoo, which breaks out of his pen and starts running across the battlefield, which makes everyone, that gives the sign to start the battle. So Unger's men all just charge in like insane out of control banshees. Chinese soldiers freak out and just start shooting everywhere. There's this huge melee and elephants running across the field. People are shouting seven different languages because these troops are from God knows where, everywhere. Um, And then for about two hours, blood ensues.
1: There's smoke from these fireworks everywhere. There are people on camels and horses with bows and arrows and spears fighting against chinese peasants who have never used this artillery not to mention it's minus 30 degrees their hands are completely frozen they're shooting these guns that are just seizing up they're aiming above everyone's heads thinking it's a bow and arrow and the bullets will come down so they're just shooting into the sky the elephant's screaming ungan is whipping his own men with the bamboo stick (laughs) to get them to charge because they don't want to it's an absolute massacre but luckily everyone's so useless that the casualties aren't even that high and eventually ungan manages to win
2: where's our beloved buddha at this point
1: the Boggard is free they reunite and him and ungan clasp hands like bros he did it
0: so now he's de facto control in control of this country like this kind of broke kind of hopeless kicked out of school pathetic army officer is now sitting in charge of the whole of mongolia he's just rescued the mongolian spiritual king, and he's going to start cleaning up. I mean, he's now in charge of a country, so he can do whatever the hell it is he wants.
1: And what he does is not officially announced, but sign off on a three-day pillaging and raping of the capital city they just freed for its own people. His men go absolutely wild. <laughs> they are just raping, murdering, pillaging indiscriminately, Ungan's after the Jews. He's a part of it. He's hunting down every Jewish family there is. They're killing all the foreigners. They're killing the locals. There's blood all over the streets. The place is soaked. All the Chinese are killed. After three days, arbitrarily, he sees a peasant woman sort of uh, digging around in some debris, drags her into the road, thrashes her with his bamboo cane, and just declares that the pillaging is over. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. Oh, sorry,
0: I should add much to the chagrin of his own doctor. His, his doctor, Dr. Klinenberg, is leading the worst of the pogroms. He's like the most murderous of all. It's like he's had all this pent-up energy from saving people, although he hasn't really saved anyone. So he's just at the front of all the most violent, bloody pogroms in Mongolia at the time.
1: He stops the pillaging and he tells the city, this place has not seen the broom since the days of Genghis Khan. And that's it. He orders his men to clean it up. And clean it up they do. It's sparkling in time for his coronation celebration.
0: He throws himself a little party after the three-day orgy of violence and destruction. Um, they have they gather all the people in the town in the centre square. They have a small procession of monks just chanting hymns, a horse-drawn cart with a wooden pyramid on it, um, the Bogard Khan and his wife riding into town just waving at everyone and then and by himself on a white stallion, still dressed as a Chinese nobleman.
1: <laughs> he's actually been redressed at this point. So the Boggert Khan grants him the title of Mahakala, which is a protector of the Dharma, which is one of the highest sort of honours you can get in Buddhism. He also gets granted the title of a reincarnation of the god of war, and there are whispers that he's the reincarnation of Genghis Khan at this point. But his new his new honours let him wear a yellow jacket and have yellow reins and to wear not one, not two, but three peacock feathers in his hat. And this is what he's wearing, followed behind the wooden pyramids down the main street. That's how you know he's a big cheese. Three peacock feathers in your hat.
2: Just, just making them stay there. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> so he's looking good. He's feeling good. He's actually achieved something pretty remarkable. He's liberated a country from an oppressor and reinstated the rightful ruler. And he, he actually starts to try and
0: run this place like a proper country. Like he he constitutes his own currency that are called barons. They're basically wooden blocks where he paints on different Mongolian steppe animals onto them. And depending what animal is painted on this wood block determines its value. So if you have a camel, it's worth a hundred bucks. If you have a sheep, it's only
1: worth five. The only problem is the only people that actually honoured the value were his own quartermasters so everyone in town would you know collect all this these barons take them to him and exchange them for goods and then not accept them back so essentially it just funneled back to him and cost the government so much money <laughs> <laughs> he's stuck with mountains and mountains of barons that he can't
0: get rid of
2: well you could just melt them down no they wouldn't oh. they wouldn't
1: <laughs> it's 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 like oh, conceptual currency he yeah. yeah. Anyway, he also attained all of the treasure that Mongolia had, which is a lot of gold given to the monasteries, which ha- they just collect and hoard money, basically. So he sort of got to tap into that on behalf of the government. There's Mexican pesos overflowing out of every tre- every treasure chest. He gets his hand on those and he starts spending it. He cleans up the streets. He tries to get shit happening. Does a moderately good job of it uh, for a few months.
0: And there's one car in the whole of Mongolia, which is this red mini Fiat. And <laughs> apparently, that's not apparently the Bogd Khan gets the battery started on it. So him and Ungern are just tearing around the town. <laughs> what? what year is this again? Exactly. It's the same year Jake's house was built in Inner Melbourne. <laughs> yeah.
2: This is wild. It is, it's
0: far out. We have
1: cars, we have movies, we have planes, and we have Ungern and the Bogged Khan hooning around Mongolia in a Red Fiat with peacock feathers in their hat and arrows on their belt. And to put it into
0: perspective, like the last chief of the Comanche Indians in the wild west of Texas is appearing in films and TV shows. Meanwhile, the Bogged Khan and Ungern Sternberg are hooning around in the only car in Mongolia, which is this. Terrifying red mini Fiat, they're just constantly like honking the horn and just screaming at everyone they pass by. So it's like it's a pretty terrifying <laughs> picture. In my head, it doesn't, it's not
2: terrifying. It's like just two mates, you know, one of them quite, uh, gratuitously jolly <laughs> and. The- <laughs> They're just road tripping around, doing some honks.
1: They're two boys on a scooter in Thailand. <laughs> yes, exactly, is that's, that's
2: exactly it. it. Yeah, about to go to the hospital to get a drip in your head for your hangover. <laughs>
1: <laughs> on the other hand, the secret police are setting up their headquarters and Ungan decrees that if you bring in a communist or an aggravator of any sort, whether they are proven guilty or not, which they are guilty... They get tortured to death, and you get to keep two thirds of all of their possessions. So, obviously, everyone in town is turning on each other. His own men are the worst at it. Dr. Klinenberg eyes off the existing doctor in the town. supplies, wants Whoa. them for himself. So, he drags him down, throws him into the torture chamber, and just gets his entire surgery. <laughs> and
0: Ungern's own law and order is becoming like really sadistic and like. So, for example, if you suspect someone of being a communist, he tries to find like the most ironic punishment he can. And one of those people he suspects is the baker's son. So he grabs the baker's son and puts him in a baking kiln and boils him alive just to send a message. And he's doing like stuff like this to everyone. Like whatever your profession is, he's going to find a punishment that
1: suits.
2: He's found his groove. He's like, you know, he's...
1: Yeah. He's... He's struggling to find trees in the city center. So he's making his men sleep on the roof of buildings for up to a week with no food as an arbitrary punishment, which he will just forget about and eventually walk past sort of look up and see him and go, let's get that man down. (laughs) And then they might be dead. or They might not be.
0: But by the way, Kyle, you said, what year is this Uh now? You know, we might think, you know, far out, man, that was a hundred years ago. Right now in Russian jail is a, Guy called the Yakut shaman today in 2021. He is an ethnic Siberian who declared himself a warrior monk. He's marching 3,000 miles from Yakutia to Moscow because he wants to expel Vladimir Putin from the Kremlin because he believes, quote, that Putin is a demonic force antithetical to nature. So his plan was to walk into Red Square, light a cleansing fire, feed it with kumis, fermented horse milk, and horse hair. Until the demon is exorcised out of Putin. It, it, it sounds it,
2: like when you say it like that, it's it's kind of like, oh, yeah, this sounds unworldly or like from from a long time ago. But this is exactly what's happening with the QAnon guys over yeah. in fucking like <laughs> Dallas at the moment. They're all standing around yelling, waiting for JFK. Same
0: thing. Dallas or Melbourne CBD. Well, yeah, that too. Jeez. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. And this guy, like, so he got halfway. He walked. 1500 miles, which is just crazy through Siberia. And you would've thought, ah, oh, that's kind of far out. That's crazy. Well, let this kooky do his things. But the Russian government actually locked him up and put him in jail because they were worried because he was starting to attract followers. And he had around 500 people marching with him in the end. So they just went, this is getting too far. What happens if he gets to the Kremlin and kicks Putin out? We can't have that.
2: Oh, uh, they should've just seen what happened.
1: Ungen starts to get similar ideas himself. He is seriously converted. He's radicalised to Buddhism by this point. He is visiting all the temples. He's hanging out with the bogged. He's hooning around in the car. God knows what they're talking about. At some point, he visits multiple shamans who throw multiple knuckle bones and all read the same thing, which is that his death is approaching in 130 days. So if Ungun wants to liberate not only Mongolia, but all of Russia and potentially all of Western Europe from the filth that's taken over it, he has to act fast. So he starts to get his shit together. And for the
0: first time ever, he decides to write something down without setting it on fire a day later.
2: He (laughs) writes this
0: proclamation called Order Number 15, which is a decree for how he wishes his empire, which he reckons he's about to install, this Buddhist empire that's gonna stretch Eurasia, um how it should be run and in order 15 he basically he writes a whole bunch of stuff he prints out hundreds of copies with his like old school printing press in mongolia and just sends them far and wide to like siberia to japan all throughout mongolia um basically in there the order just says if you meet any communist revolutionaries jews or polish people they
1: should be executed on the spot how
2: did the poles get in there I'm not
1: entirely sure. <laughs> and it also doesn't make sense because enter our third character in this play who is a Pole himself. Uh, his name is Osendowski and he is the famous travel author that rocks up into Urga at this point in time to hang out with Ungan. And he's been quite influential. He actually helped him write the proclamation uh, as well as numerous other things. But he had quite a journey to get there himself. He was living in Poland at the time of the collapse of the Russian empire, but he'd been living all over the world before this doing God knows what. He'd written a few little travel books that had been published to sort of varying success. But then this one was written after his monstrous journey from Poland to Mongolia, in which he passed through war-torn Russia, lived under a tree stump for three months to hide from the Bolsheviks, eventually got into Tibet, got his ass kicked by Tibetan cowboys until he was given a magic ring by the king of Tibet, which if he held above his head, would let him pass unscathed through the land. Eventually he lost all of his friends crossing a river in Mongolia because they were all riding camels and he was riding a horse. When you cross a river on a camel, instead of swimming, it just rolls onto its side to float. So they all (laughs) drowned horribly in a river, whereas he was on a horse and managed to ride out the other side. He got himself to Urga and was immediately dragged in front of the yurt that Ungan lived in and thrown inside. He said that there was a fresh pool of blood sinking into the ground, absolutely no lights on, and just Ungan manically pacing around, Mm. sort of muttering to himself. They got into a bit of a scrap and he said, "Who who the hell are you, basically? And he somehow managed to talk his way out of being executed on the spot. There were several other prisoners there as well who Ungen apparently did his mind-reading trick where he just held his hand over their head. One of them, he decided, was a Bolshevik who had secret codes sewn into the innards of his jacket. So he was immediately shot on the spot and the other two were left to live. Uh, Fast forward, I don't know, they're hooning around town in the car, they're getting drunk with the boggard, they become the best of friends. All three of them now. Osendowski, all three of them, they're a posse.
0: They are a posse. But like even... The weird thing is with Osandowski, he's having all these like wild adventures, but he has time to stop in Novosibirsk, the capital of Siberia, and become a senior lecturer at the university there. <laughs> so he's lecturing for about <laughs> six months until the communists come and check him out of there. He's allegedly head of the Metallurgical Society of Russia. There's a rumor that his name isn't in fact Osand- Ferdinand Osandowski, that he's an imposter who's stolen his name and is traveling under this pseudonym. And no
1: one knows who he actually really is. He also, as he told Ungan, was absolutely, under no circumstances, a communist or a revolutionary. (laughs) Yet in 1905, he lived and worked at a university in Manchuria and was the president of something called the Main Revolutionary Committee. (laughs) And found found himself somehow fighting the whites in Mongolia, fighting the Reds in Mongolia. But he, so he is the main source any information, of any colour at least, on Ungan. So he's taken notes this entire time uh, and gets but home. So he, yeah.
2: he actively sought him out. So he, is that, is that what happened? He kind of.
1: No, so, I'll backtrack. He was travelling through Siberia and therefore Mongolia to get to China, to get on a boat, Yes, to get to New York City. It's probably the quickest way to do it. Yeah. (laughs) The the quickest way out, like a lot of people, was to get to the coast of China, Mm -hmm. get on a boat and get the hell out of there to America. Uh, And he heard on the grapevine, which they don't say on the grapevine in Mongolia, they say heard in the cracks of the frost that Ungan had liberated Mongolia and was a safe haven for anti-revolutionaries like him. So he made his way there.
2: For anti-revolutionaries like him?
1: Yeah, quote, unquote. Okay. <laughs> Post-revolutionary committee, anti-revolutionaries.
2: It's like they say, like extremism is just as bad on each end. So really, it's, it should be quite easy to transition from one end to the other.
1: You just keep going around until you come around the other side. Ah, is that what it It's is fine. Being? It's a three-dimensional <laughs> s- sphere. It's like you said, Jake. You could be so far left that if you keep pushing, you end up on the far
0: right anyway. You just push the whole way around. <laughs> <in.
2: laughs> oh, that's correct. <laughs> very correct.
1: As good friends as they were, they his description of Ungen was as a rambling, manic psycho who sort of muttered to himself. He spoke in third person all the time. He sort of tuttered and talked about destiny and just so be it and this is the way things shall be and, 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 and sort of pacing around a lot at this point, especially post-learning about the prophecy of his own death. A few other rumours to get out of the way is that Osandowski and Ungan both shared half of a map to something called the war chest, which was one part Mexican dollars, the other part barons, and another part, monasterial gold, which we'll get into later. Also, I think the Mongolians, yes, the Boggard's back, back in action, doing his thing, but Ungan's treating them fairly poorly. Uh, they, he may have worn out his welcome in the capital. That's
0: putting it mildly. Yeah, there's like shop owners complaining that he's hanging so many dead bodies in front of their shop. Customers are put off. <laughs> so he's bad for business. I was, I
2: was expecting it to be like, oh, he's uh, he's loud and drunk a lot. Hello, he's stringing up the dead.
0: <laughs> we'll put it this way: he's bad for business. He's ruining the economy with this fake currency called barons that no one will accept. He's hooting around in the mini-fiat at all hours, honking (laughs) incessantly. Um, You know, he's killing people left, right and center. So yeah, he probably is wearing out his
1: welcome at this point. (laughs) Not to mention he has 130 days to live. So that's it. He gets the proclamation out there. He considers that done and dusted. The people know what to do. He gathers his men and he hits the road. At this point, Vladimir Lenin is firmly in control of Russia.
0: He's had a bit of trouble with the Poles, but now his all-seeing eye is shifting towards Mongolia and he wants to get rid of the last pockets of resistance, which is Ungun and his very
1: disheveled men who are in charge of Mongolia. So Ungun, he does have a few loose ends to tie off. Remember, he got married at some point, which is never mentioned at any point. He, He declares that a real warrior should not have a family and therefore nothing to lose, divorces her, and that's done and dusted. He sends out his proclamation. He gets given a magical amulet, which will help stop bullets that are shot directly at him. He's also given a white horse. It's very symbolic. He's given a white horse, which he takes
0: around with him, which, as the legend goes, if you're in battle and you get off the horse and you're running into battle, the ghost of Genghis Khan rides up onto the saddle of that horse and goes into battle alongside you. So you always leave this white horse for Genghis Khan in case his ghost comes to help.
2: Sick. Get him in there. That's someone you want to be in battle with. He
1: also, he also is starting to believe that he's not only reinstating the Tsar, but potentially going to keep on going all the way to the sea in Western Europe.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, and cleanse Europe of its filth with what he starts to claim is a 100,000-strong army given to him by the Dalai Lama, which is on its way.
2: I do like I know that at this point we're probably meant to be not on his side, but I'm kinda of rooting for him. If we've got if got <laughs> you know
0: If you put aside like all the um blood soaked
1: mayhem and just murdering and genocide, you're right.
2: We all make mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> how
1: yeah. are we how are we meant to learn if not by our mistakes and by doing? He is a man of action if I ever saw one. He's a man of arbitrary random action which is even better and it's like he's got this opportunity because of all
0: the leaders that are like anti-communist all the white leaders and generals he's the only one that's in charge of a country so he could in theory set up like a sort of alternative to what the communists are installing and attract people that way they can go okay this is not so bad instead he just doubles down on being an out-of-control tyrant his delusions start growing like just so so unhinged. He believes that he's going to single-handedly, you know, retake Russia, overturn the civil war, and behead Vladimir Lenin at some point. I mean, he with an army of a thousand. He's people.
2: got he's got some like history to fall back on though, because he's he's done some he's taken over a country before.
1: Exactly. He now has historic precedent to do it. And he was outright delusional before. Now he's outright delusional with at least one success under his belt, which is (laughs) infinitely more than none. Mm -hmm. And he finds out that the Tsar
0: has been murdered. You know, the Russian Tsar was taken to, I think it's Yekaterinburg, and just basically put in a barn with his family and executed by the Bolsheviks. He gets the news, instead of like... You know, taking it to heart and seeing it as a negative, he starts rooting for the czar's eight-year-old younger cousin, who he says he'll be the next one on the throne. So he has this flag maker flag made up of this little eight-year-old boy covered in like <laughs> Buddhist reverse swastikas and religious scripture, and starts flying that from the back of his horse.
1: So, he's wearing he's wearing his Mongolian robe, he's got his peacock feathers in, he's got a swastika on his chest with a magic amulet, he's got his Russian medal for bravery, he's got his empty white horse for the ghost of Genghis Khan, and he leads his army north. He's off. He's going to do it.
2: Is he kind of a self-conscious dude? I th- Do you think? Just because he has all of the... Anyone else, all these other I- l- leaders, they're just like... It's, I am, I'm the fucking, I'm the man, and that's why I can do it. And he's just like, has to surround himself with amulets and magic and, uh, and, and spiritual leaders.
1: As you described him himself, uh, yourself, he's just this reedy little husky guy. He's, he's known to have the screechy voice of a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> his head, even though his forehead looks large, his head looks tiny. He's got this sort of grotesque little Esche moustache big clothes he just looks like a sort of a kid on hard times basically so I, I think just it's a bit of a his self-awareness Is it no
2: what's the small what's the kid version of a curmudgeon <laughs> a curmudge well
0: and we forgot to mention that earlier in his life he got a big scar down his uh, forehead and across his eye because he was constantly dueling people when he was in the military for a brief period and at one point he was drinking at this bar called the Black Eagle and he was shooting his pistol in the bar to show off like how good of a shot he was. So he's like, watch me. I'll get that pint glass over there. Lasting it. No one, none of the bar staff said anything. Then at the end of the night, they <laughs> presented with a bill. He gets so mad. He slaps this. He throws the bar staff out of the window like a Wild West saloon. Um, and then gets in a duel with another soldier who allegedly smashes him over the head with a saber. And that's how he gets this big
1: scar so he might be a little (laughs) self-conscious
0: he's
1: i think he's self-conscious but he is not self-aware he he's a bizarre blend of both because you know you don't put on you don't wear paraphernalia except to be seen Uh, that's true he's an insecure genocidal warlord
2: (laughs) (laughs) but really all he needs is like he just wants a little bit of attention and maybe if he got that then he wouldn't
0: be where he is. I think him declaring himself a living god of
1: war was a cry for help.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) It does say on numerous occasions that he has stepdaddy issues as well. He outright refuses to speak a word to his stepdad from the moment he enters his life and one can't help but think this could have started some of this trouble. He may be slightly unhinged. I mean, if (laughs)
0: straight... If strangling an owl wasn't a sign of things to come, I don't know what is. Anyway, look, let, let's we'll cut to the chase here because at this point, his delusion has grown tenfold. And rather than he's facing a Russia that's in control by the communists that has hundreds of thousands of troops at its disposal, it's getting tanks, it's getting aeroplanes. He has a thousand men, most of whom are on horseback, and he's deciding now is the good time to
1: launch an invasion of russia they get to the border which is essentially there's a line drawn through a town and there's a mongolian side and a russian side uh they get the shit beaten out of them don't they basically yeah
0: he basically crosses over he immediately runs into the red army which is now formed and just gets whooped and they get pushed back across the border back into Mongolia. When he gets, well, when after this happens, he does what every great leader does and blames one of his underlings. He chooses to blame Doctor Klinenberg, and he starts beating the doctor with <laughs> this bamboo cane that he's always carrying around mercilessly. Um, and then tries again to re-invade Russia.
1: <laughs> he keeps getting beaten, as you can imagine, quite easily, and just repulsed back into Mongolia they drag their feet he press gangs more poor nomads he loses they get press ganged out of his army and back into the Russian army everyone's morale is just plummeting Ungan's a delusional maniac at this point people are sort of starting to see what's going on and even the sort of most fervent believer is losing it
0: yeah. And, and Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, he can barely speak anymore. He's just muttering and just stammering and he's just a drug addled mess. I don't know if he's on drugs, but they suspect he's using either opium or just having way too many trips with the shamans out in the plains, who is consulting constantly. But now the jig's up, like his men after all of this, after being dragged across Russia, after being left on the Mongolian steppe to nearly starve, after taking over Mongolia, they've just kind of realised the jig is up, they've had enough, and they abandon him.
1: He, he tells them, all right, fellas, Russia's not looking great, we need to recoup, so we're going to head across the Gobi Desert to Tibet to meet our army of 100,000 Buddhist warriors. And most of them don't think this is a great idea. And bail. Or one that's real whatsoever. <laughs> he has a lot of money with him. Because of his successes, basically. But for some reason, at this point, he just dumps it all in a river and abandons it. Exactly. He dumps the he dumps the loot. His men are
0: still terrified of him. So they're not gonna like be insubordinate or try and overthrow him. So there's a point where he's in his tent, just milling around, muttering to himself, all his men are outside. They've talked amongst themselves and they say they wanna they wanna leave, they want this to be over, but no one's sure what to do. So they're standing around, petrified with fear, until someone just says, enough, calls on Gun out. I think there's a small gun battle. They tie him up and just leave him out in the step. They're too afraid to kill him. And the Mongols particularly don't want to spill royal blood and they see him now as some type of Buddhist god of war. So they just take off. They leave him tied up out on the Mongolian steppe and just disappear, leaving him pathetic, unclothed, naked.
1: The exact sort of way he came into this world and that's exactly how the soviets find him just sitting there literally and figuratively defeated well it's sort of amazing like the russians actually find him yeah tied up out there they
0: can't believe they found the, the baron he's sort of like the osama bin laden of russia at this stage he's russia's most wanted they take him back all the way to siberia to novosibirsk they put him on trial he's still wearing his big golden mongol robe the deal. Um, with his Medal of St. George, which they they take the robe off him because they're worried he's going to use it to commit suicide. They interrogate him for a while. They give him this kind of like quick 24-hour court trial. Um, and everyone says that he's remarkably calm. He's just got this glazed look over his eyes. He knows he's about to die. Um, and he doesn't care in the slightest. He shows very little remorse. He, he only mentions that perhaps he overstepped the mark a little bit with some of the genocidal pogroms and he's court-martialed, trialled and executed that same day.
1: Was, it, was that
2: the 132 days or whatever it was? It
1: was, right? clo- it was close enough. That's pretty good. The fact that it was not exactly right leads me to believe that it wasn't retroactively applied and maybe, maybe it was a real proclamation. Otherwise, it would have just been accurate, wouldn't it? I don't know. He can't even die at the right time. This poor <laughs> man.
0: And fun fact, his golden deal that he was wearing is actually um, on show in the Moscow Central Military Authority Museum. So you can go see the robe worn by the bloody white Baron.
1: He went out with a, a bit of a whimper, but he kind of came into the world with a bit of a whimper too. He He was moderately successful, but kind of a failure at the same time and now we're getting to the point now we're getting to the point i guess you could say anyway Carl, that was the pitch <laughs> <laughs> so let's get down to brass
2: <laughs> well look i will only pay in uh barons um, so if i have to invest at it all it will be yes barons
1: so Carl, we found about we found out about Ungun just as a footnote in a history book, and both essentially gasped because there was it just said, blah 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 blah, the man that took over Mongolia and Russia, and we just went, "What? Why isn't this an incredibly popular story?" Delved into it, found it interesting, as I'm sure you can imagine, but what we did not expect is that it would lead us to something that would change our lives forever. And I think a good place to start with what this is, is at that river where the Baron dumped his treasure.
0: In a nutshell, we think that treasure is still out there. We think it's either buried or submerged in this river. We're thinking of starting a cryptocurrency, the value of which-
2: I fucking knew this was gonna be a cryptocurrency.
0: I mean, look, come on, everything in life is these days. Everything results down to a cryptocurrency pyramid scheme. I've always really
2: wanted to uh, be part of a pyramid scheme.
0: We're building a pyramid scheme so large, it'll make a
1: pharaoh gore. You know? <laughs> yeah. To come will so yeah. rise from the grave, have a heart attack and die again immediately. Yeah. Okay. The, 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 this currency's worth is going to be based on the treasure that we uncover. So we're
0: going to trade this crypto. The money we raise from it will be used to launch an expedition to Mongolia to dig up the baron's treasure. And once we find it which we will we're going to spread the treasure amongst anyone that holds that cryptocurrency oh great
1: so not only would the currency be worth an immeasurable sum immediately based on the potential value of the treasure it will exponentially grow upon the discovery of the treasure retroactively so everyone will get rich and richer and richer i imagine
2: yeah but the <laughs> but the The amount of the treasure is finite. There is only a certain amount of treasure. With a a normal
0: cryptocurrency,
2: it could be anything.
0: Don't jump the gun, Kyle. (laughs)
2: Okay.
1: Jake, fill him in. So we believe that Ungun may have stumbled upon Genghis Khan's treasure at some point in his travels, which as, as of yet is undiscovered and supposed to be the largest treasure trove on the planet. Why do we think he thought that he could retake Russia, if not because he was currently at that point the richest man alive? I think this river holds the treasure of two Genghis Khan's, two gods of war, two reincarnated Buddhas.
2: Yeah,
0: you got a point. So, anyway, long story short, yeah, we've, we've got a cryptocurrency called Genghis Tron that we want to launch. And will you lend your celebrity endorsement to it?
2: Oh, absolutely! I um, I have a lot. You know, I've got a lot of followers. I've got uh, four thousand and six on Instagram. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big number.
1: Wait, do you actually? Yeah. Well, infinite number. There's also another outcome which we haven't discussed, but I imagine will naturally happen, is that our mission into Mongolia. Will we re- reawaken the slumbering dreams of the wongol what wongol, the Mongol war machine. Mm-hmm. Mongolia Carl is under assault from global warming. They are copying the worst of the worst, and once again, just like a hundred years ago, to the year when Ungam was there, they are ready to pop, and I believe they're going to get behind this operation just as strongly as you have.
2: Why? So that they can fund uh, sustainable
1: fund their families? Could you relate to that, Carl? You've got a family of five to feed. And last I spoke to you, quote, all my cryptos have gone down the drain. You're a blithering
2: mess. (laughs) Look, it hasn't been kind to me, the crypto market, but- um, It's because
0: you've chosen the wrong leader.
2: That's
0: it. Look, Carl, you don't have to feel like embarrassed about it. I once held stock in a company called Orangutan Oil Limited. (laughs) <laughs> which fell under US sanctions. So I tried to sell it all and I wiped out my life savings, $483. <laughs> and I, I get I know what it's like. But with this <laughs> cryptocurrency, you're at a win-win. You have the currency itself, which is set to exponentially rise. Once we reinvigorate, you know, the lost kind of Mongolia, you've got buried treasure. No one does that. Hordes and hordes of loot. Mm. And you've got adventure. What's not to like?
2: Yeah, I mean... I feel like you should understand, the, you know, the, the cryptocurrency market a little bit better before going so hog-headedly into this.
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe that to be the case. I'll be a man on the ground, boots on the ground, Kyle. That's my, that's my understanding of the situation.
0: Genghis Tron will topple fiat currency as we know it. You
1: mark my words. Little red. Little red fiat currency. Oh look,
2: cool. I'm investing anyway, so I'm yes. on
0: board. I'm
1: bloody on love board. It, love it. I'll send you either mine or Sebastian's personal bank details to get this ball <laughs> rolling. The initial investment shouldn't be too offensive. The <laughs>
2: yeah, all right.
1: Following investments will be up for discussion. <laughs>
2: Exponential, I can imagine.
1: Kyle, welcome to Genghis Tron, and I am very, very pleased to say that you are our first official backer, and probably the most important.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: just based on the weight you pull in celebrity circles, as well as online, you're a digital god. Um, what do you just to summarise? What did you, what did you think about the Baron's life? Any last thoughts?
2: Um. I think that he, he, was a, he was a misunderstood fella. He just really craved attention and love and uh, just like at the beginning of his life, that abandonment, uh, it was really a main theme of him, you know, he wanted to be included in a group, he wanted some love and uh, he kept on being pushed away and that made him bitter and twisted um so really when you think about it it's um it's the people's fault it's the rest of the world
1: and uh and who are the people if not the communists exactly so yeah it's
2: just the fucking communists it's always them.
1: (laughs) the ironic end of his life you're quite right abandoned literally abandoned left alone to die carl welcome
0: to genghis tron and goodbye
2: goodbye and thank you